Welcome to Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. I am your host, Carter Hockman, and joining me this week is one of the best play-by-play broadcasters in the modern day. He is the current play-by-play broadcaster for the Premier League on NBC, Peter Drury. Thank you so much for coming on, Peter. Good to be with you, Carter. So we had a chance to chat about a week or so ago, and you did actually mention to me that you yourself were also a goalkeeper. So I'll stick with my standard question to start the podcast, which is what made you want to become a goalkeeper originally? (laughs) Good question. Just to make clear, I wouldn't want to categorize myself with you or any uh, established goalkeeper at any particularly high level of the game. Uh, I was just a schoolboy goalkeeper. um, And I, I loved it actually from a very young age. I was the youngest of three brothers and we used to kick a ball around us as families do. And I was often the one put in goal Um, And I just love throwing myself around in the mud, to be honest. Um, I love the heroics of it. One of my first heroes in football, um, as I grew up in those days with um, an affinity for West Ham Football Club, was uh, a guy called Mervyn Day, who was a a terrific young English goalkeeper uh, who threw himself around for West Ham and was uh, athletic and had a certain charisma, I thought. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I sort of fell in love with him. Um, and yeah, I, I kept goal up to a point between the age of sort of seven and, and 21, 22. And I, I loved it. I loved it when uh, I was in the action and it was all going well. <coughs> and then when I had a crisis of confidence, I loved it when the ball was at the other end of the field, to be perfectly honest. I, I can't say I blame you. It's one of the most fun I've ever had as a goalkeeper is either making the super heroic save or just watching the game unfold from you know, 100 yards away. Exactly that. And, and you know, I'm a commentator now. And, uh, and when the ball was 100 yards away, I used to, um, in those days as a young guy, I used to commentate on my, play, on my, on my friends playing. Uh, and, and I loved those days. But, of course, I also did love the days when, um, when I was in the thick of it. And, and um, you, you know, you, you threw yourself around and, and got filthy, muddy, and made heroic saves and, and felt good about yourself, you know. And, and I think if we're talking goalkeeping, I think, to be perfectly honest, that's what makes the difference between the really proper goalkeepers, the great goalkeepers, and, and the rest of us, and I mean myself, who were just schoolboy uh, student goalkeepers, if you like. You know, really anyone can make those saves that uh, look heroic and you hurl yourself up to the top corner and you dive right and you dive left. But as you understand probably better than me, real goalkeeping is to do with making judgments, coming for crosses, getting through a crowd of players and holding on to the ball under massive uh, physical pressure. Um, and when it came to that sort of stuff, I'm afraid I wasn't so good. I backed myself reasonably in one-on-one situations. I was happy to to run out and throw myself at the feet of a, an oncoming striker. I was reasonably um, courageous in those sort of circumstances. But when it came to judging a high cross into the penalty area um, and rising and taking the pressure off my defenders, I was terrible. And I was also terrible when it came to distribution. I didn't have any sort of length on my clearance. Um, and I panicked, to be honest. So... Uh, again, I, I would stress that my level of goalkeeping is nowhere even remotely close to yours. 
Well, see, well, you had the the dialogue going. You you had the commentating going while you were in net while the ball was on the other end of the pitch. All of my monologues were internal, which I think <laughs> explains our separation in career paths. <laughs> But this is a very open-ended question, and it's in two parts. But but when did you first know you wanted to, to leave goalkeeping, get involved with sports broadcasting, and what was your journey into the profession like for you? Well, first of all, I never really left goalkeeping. That's because true. I never you never really... leave. <laughs> well, no, true. You never leave. But it, but in a in a in a career sense, I never joined. That's what I was going to say. Um, you know that that was that was never even close to being a possibility. Um, I, and I never really joined broadcasting in a serious way until after university. You know, I was, I, I, as I say, like a lot of young boys and girls playing sport at their level. Uh, you know, I used to pretend to commentate, um, but that was that was not even really a pipe dream. It wasn't a part of a plan or anything like that. It was uh, it was only after I'd finished being a student and uh, I was briefly a trainee accountant, and I thought that I would um, just follow the dream. And and since then, I've I've had a lot of good fortune, you know, um, going through first local radio and then um, national BBC radio into network television here in uh, the UK and, and via various other ventures. Here I am uh, commentating on the game in the United States, which I couldn't possibly have foreseen 30 years ago. Um, and it's it's so interesting to see just how that journey has evolved in terms of not only the accessibility of the sport in you know when we talk about the Premier League being broadcast to the U.S., just how that's evolved over the years. Yes, it is, um, and and is still evolving. I mean, you'll be aware that uh, NBC this weekend just gone has had another one of its fan fests in Orlando, and the popularity of those, you know, they are huge. They're huge. An awful lot of people go just to show off their colours and and engage in the Premier League, and it. It is a very interesting thing the way um, American sport uh, is seeping into the UK and and the Premier League in turn is seeping into the United States. And it's got to be helped. You know, sport is sport. People enjoy it. Um, and and it's, it's lovely for us in the Premier League world um, to see that people are making the choice, you know, because if you grow up in the States, um, I can't speak for you, but if you grow up in the States, that's probably not the sport that you've been born to. So you are making a, a deliberate choice, um, which kind of bucks the trend to uh, go with the Premier League. Um, and NBC, long before I've been a part of it, have done fantastic work in, in engaging with those people and uh, I guess leading them to make that choice. Um, uh, and, and as I say, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting comparison and I don't have facts and figures around it. It's just just my reading of the situation that there is there is a strong niche following, for instance, here in the UK for the NFL. And equally now, it's it's clear that there is a strong niche following for the Premier League in the United States. Um, and, you know, long may that continue and continue to grow. Absolutely. And it's so funny you mentioned that because when I was I was actually out in London uh, for the Arsenal versus Nottingham Forest game back at the end of October. And that was another week where the NFL had a game at Tottenham Stadium. And I would I remember that morning. It was a Sunday. And, you know, I'm in my hotel and I go downstairs to have breakfast. And, you know, I've been in the UK for about two days at that point, two, three days at that point. 
and it's a bunch of NFL jerseys in, in the yeah. hotel lobby. You must have wondered why you left home. I wondered if I, if the whole thing was a dream. Yeah. Uh, but no. moving back towards the goalkeeping side of things, having paid such close attention to the best goalkeepers in the world for so many years now, what's one thing that you've noticed that separates them from the rest of the players on the pitch, whether it be how they conduct themselves during warm-ups, how they carry themselves after a win or a loss? What's, what's that differentiate that you've seen? I honestly believe it's it's a sort of presence, an aura, a certainty, which is really enviable, particularly for those of us, and I count myself as one, who are essentially failed sports people. You know, um, it, it's if you look, funny enough, yesterday at Aaron Ramsdale uh, at Arsenal or Nick Pope for Newcastle at Crystal Palace the other night, they give, of course, they're not invincible, but they give off um, a certain air of invincibility, um, a real sense of certainty, um, as if psychologically they're kind of impenetrable, as if they really believe that every decision they make, every call they make is going to be the right call. And of course it's not, but that, that sort of thick mental skin, I think, is what marks them out. Um, if they decide they're going to come off a line, off their goal line to gather across, that is what they're going to do, for better or worse. Um, and they're in a position, as you understand, where there isn't any latitude for a moment's uncertainty. A moment's uncertainty costs you a goal when you're the goalkeeper. And, and those really top goalkeepers um, don't allow themselves to be uncertain. They make their mind up and they go for it. Um, and they believe they're going to get the ball. And honestly, that is what I think more than anything else um, marks them out from other goalkeepers. Because as I said, almost laughingly in relation to myself back at the very beginning of this, I think almost any young person in their athletic prime, whatever that prime may be, is capable of throwing themselves left and throwing themselves right and high and low and making what look like um, great, great saves. But very, very few people have the, the mental fortitude as well, frankly, as the physical talent that takes you to the, the very, very top in that trade. And that plays perfectly into my next question for you, which is goalkeepers seemingly more often than not can carry the brunt of a loss on their shoulders because ultimately it's, it's, it's our number one job. It's basically the entire job description is to keep the ball out of the net. And when you fail to do that, it can feel like it's your fault and it does take a mental toll on you as an athlete and as a person. We, we've even seen, you mentioned him, we've seen keepers like Aaron Ramsdale be furious after a win because he's conceded a goal. From your understanding, what do most people not fully understand about what it takes mentally to play the position? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And again, I'll take you back to grassroots because I've, I've had three sons who played not in goal, but for for local teams that I've helped to coach and so on. And it's really interesting for young kids, you know, the ones who want to become goalkeepers and the ones who don't. And, you know, you play at a level where perhaps everybody has to take their turn in goal. And it's a really punishing position for young people, because especially when you're young and you're not necessarily particularly adept at it, you know, you're going to be the one who lets in the goal that costs the game, whether it's your fault or not. And, and for six, seven, eight-year-old boys and girls, that can be really hurtful. Um, and so coming through that at a very young age is, is important. And obviously, when you get to the top of the game, uh, dealing with those moments, um, 
is perhaps even more important. And, and that plays again into that um, thick mental skin that I'm talking about. And funnily enough, in yesterday's Arsenal-Manchester United game, um, Aaron Ramsdale did make an, an error of judgment coming off his line and, and cost the goal. Um, the one that Martinez headed back in beyond him into the top corner. Uh, and I was really interested to see his body language afterwards, actually, because far seemingly from being angry, he was, as Arsenal players would be in the aftermath of that game, clearly uh, hugely celebratory. Now, <clears throat> that might have just been because they won the game. It might have been because, as it were, he got away with his error uh, because it might have cost him points and in the end it didn't. Or it might be, and I prefer to think this, that he now does have the mental fortitude to accept that there's no point beating himself up about that. He made great saves in that game. 98% of that game was perfect for him. Um, and <laughs> that he doesn't need to be harsh on himself uh, and feel uh, that, that sort of real burden of, of responsibility for the little moment that went wrong because he knows that so much of what he's doing is going right uh, just now. And, and I think, again, at, at the top level, it's really important that goalkeepers don't beat themselves up um, because if they do, they're going to be pulped. You know, there's going to be nowhere to go because uh, a goalkeeper, as you say, is someone who, whether it's justified or not, seemingly is always going to have to take his or her um, fair share, more than his or her fair share, of, of the burden of responsibility when things go wrong. And it plays into a lesson I was taught growing up as a goalkeeper. You know, I had it branded into my brain for many years is you have to have, and I know you, you've heard this as well, is just have a short memory, but it doesn't, it doesn't just play into when you make a mistake or when you let up a goal. You have to have a short memory after you have a great game or you, have, you make a great save. Sure, you can re remember what you did well, but just take that into your training. You can't live on the high moments because the low moments will come and you have to be ready mentally for the next play. You can't be thinking about what a great save you made uh, 20 minutes ago. You can't be thinking about how you, sh that, you know, that Aaron Ramsdale sh should have punched the ball as opposed to trying to catch it over Tommy Yasu's head. So that was, that was a perfect, I think, example of that for any goalkeeper watching was he didn't dwell on it and he doesn't, he didn't dwell on the amazing game he played against Tottenham the, the week before. No, that's right. It's really interesting, the whole dwelling on thing. Um, the point is, too, that goalkeepers have a lot of thinking time. Yes, they can have a frantic game against a dominant opponent, which keeps them busy. But regardless of that, a lot of the game passes a goalkeeper by. It's happening when the goalkeeper isn't in the thick of it. And particularly when you're surrounded by a crowd of 40, 50, 60, 70,000 people, some of whom might be ready to taunt you and make you feel uncomfortable. You know, that thinking time could be punishing. Um, just as, as you rightly say, um, thinking time could be harmful if you're in the midst of some wonderful form, because you can fool yourself into believing that you are more... Um, adjacent to Superman than actually you are, you know. You, you might believe, you might come to believe that you're um, impenetrable and you're not. Uh, and that even-headedness is, is a really important thing. I, having said which, you know, goalkeepers are just human beings and they're all, you know, each is different to the other. Um, a, a, a relatively recent former England goalkeeper you'll be familiar with, Joe Hart, 
was often discussed and still is. He's the man, the, the goalkeeper of Celtic in Scotland now because he was so evidently pumped before every game. He was very vocal. He would shout and scream in the tunnel. And, and there were those who said, this is great because he's in the moment and, and he's prepared. And there were those who argue that sometimes that got him into trouble because he, he'd lost his even-headedness um, and, and was liable to, to make a mistake that he might otherwise not have done. I, I, you know, he's an intelligent man and he would be able to answer for himself. I, I don't know how he would react to that. But, but that state of mind um, is, is a very interesting thing to examine. It is, but unfortunately, you will not be able to convince me that I am not directly adjacent to Superman. So I'm going to keep that mentality for as long as I can. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why yeah. not? You've got to believe in yourself. It's true. Um, and we've kind of touched on this, uh, or you've mentioned it a few times, but I'd love you to go into more detail. I mean, what from, from what you've seen separates the good goalkeepers in the Premier League, for example, from the great ones? I've heard, I mean, we've talked about a few different answers, but especially at this level, most, if not all goalkeepers, and you mentioned it, will be great shot stoppers. They can boot the ball the length of the field. But what are the traits that make you say he's head and shoulders above the rest? Well, uh, again, um, having mentioned the things I already have, it's, it, it's easy to think a goalkeeper is great when he's busy. And funnily enough, goalkeepers who play for the teams in the bottom half of the Premier League um, often find themselves in the shop window because they are the ones who are having to make saves because they're playing against teams that are better than them. And that, that's one of the curiosities of being a goalkeeper. You know, you need, you need the opposition to be good in order for you to be a part of the game, um, which, which is kind of contradictory. Um, but alongside that, you would also say that the great goalkeepers are very often those who play for the best teams and are therefore inactive um, for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time and need to retain their concentration in order to react when their moment comes. And they might only get three or four moments per half. So you're talking here, Alisson and Aderson, you know, two great Brazilian goalkeepers for Liverpool and Manchester United, who are very often pretty idle. But when their moment comes, their judgment is impeccable. And, and I guess what has changed um, too in the in the 30 plus years since I was keeping goal at least semi-regularly at a very humble level, is that you need to be a player now as well. You know, the, the great goalkeepers can use the ball. Aderson is one of the finest passers in the Premier League, uh, which marks him out. He doesn't just boot the ball forward. He has a look up and he delivers his clearance with real precision. And as you know, he has, he has directly assisted several goals for Manchester City. And, and that is a point of difference. It's, it's so interesting you mentioned that, and it, it does play into my next question, but one of the things that I realized is that you as a goalkeeper, and it took me maybe until my early years of college to realize this as a player, but some of your best games you're, you're, as a goalkeeper, you can make six, seven, eight saves, but you're letting in two, three, four goals, and sometimes you can play a terrible game, make two saves, but, and you get a clean sheet, but it was, it was a shaky game with your feet or you weren't communicating well with your center back. So it's an interesting way of looking at the position where you can, have, you can play phenomenally and still let up three or four goals. Yeah, it, and it's, it's punishing that. It's punishing because, you know, you can play phenomenally and you, you, know, you know you can come off having lost 3-0 and you know deep down that if it wasn't for you, you'd have lost 8-0. 
but nobody's jumping on your back and saying, hey, well played and, you know, slapping you on the back and giving you a big hug because you're all low because you've lost 3-0. <laughs> and, you know, you, you have done everything in your powers to, to keep that scoreline respectable. You've been playing against a much, much better team. Um, and yet you're the one that comes off um, feeling miserable. But listen, if you want life to be fair, don't be a goalkeeper because for a goalkeeper, life just is not fair. I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead, but from, and we mentioned it with, with, or you mentioned it with Ederson and Allison, especially who's also phenomenally at this, but I remember a, a brief time when it wasn't really necessary for a goalkeeper to be able to clip perfect balls to his wing backs or over the topper or even combine out of the back. And all you needed to be was a great shot stopper and to boot the ball to the other 18 yard box. Yeah. From your vantage point, how have you seen the position evolve the most over the years? Well, in that regard, because to be perfectly honest, you know, there was a time when um, being the goalkeeper was at a certain level an acceptance that you weren't a good enough player. You know, I'll stick him in goal because he can't do anything else. Now, you know, that doesn't happen often because there's always someone who wants to be the goalkeeper. But you take my point. You didn't have to be particularly proficient at the other areas of the game in order to be a goalkeeper. Um, you did need to have a certain mental strength and, yeah, a certain agility and athleticism and elasticity. All of those things helped. But, you know, again, when I was still playing football at, at my level, um, you know, the goalkeeper could kick the ball, uh, could pick the ball up, hold it more or less as long as he wanted, even gather back passes if you go further back into my school days. Um and, and essentially waste time before kicking it out of his hands as far as he could kick it. And that was the extent of his contribution to, if you like, the, the, the sort of um, progression of the game. He was nothing more nor less than a stopper. Um, it's not that simple anymore. The goalkeeper is now the 11th player. And, and that, is a, that is a huge, a huge and radical change. And it, it would be fascinating to, to look back at some of the, you know, the great goalkeepers of yesteryear and to wonder whether they would have been great goalkeepers in this generation. And we'll never know because they were great in their time. And there's nothing to suggest that they couldn't have adapted in the way that modern goalkeepers have. But, you know, through the sort of uh, 1980s and 1990s, those were the goalkeepers who had it toughest because they were goalkeepers who had grown up, if you like, under one regime and mid-career were having to uh, evolve into another regime, um, you know, where, where they suddenly couldn't pick up a back pass. And then increasingly, as we moved into the 21st century, they were expected to, to be the 11th player, to contribute, to have um, a, an on-the-ball relationship with the two, three, four defenders in front of them to be able to look up and, and see that the striker was about to um, break the offside line at the other end and, and to play the ideal through ball. So the, the, the guys who had to live through that period of change had it really tough, some of them. And, and I suspect some careers ended sooner than they would have done. I, I can't think of a specific example, but I suspect some did because they, they couldn't um, adapt in the way that progressive uh, coaches wanted them to so they had it tough but it's it's established now you know you can't be a top goalkeeper if you can't play football it's true and and, and i i wonder if you've seen if you've taken a look at my notes as well because you keep leading perfectly into my next questions but having 
played the position myself for so long, I've heard all of the stereotypes and stigmas like all the goalkeepers are crazy or, or all the goalkeepers are the laziest players in the field or that they're the worst, you know, uh, for they're the worst footballers on the field. They're not they're not complete footballers. I would argue that goalkeepers are actually the smartest, calmest and most athletic people on the field. But what would your response to those kinds of statements be? Yeah, well, first of all, that, that in terms of not being competent footballers, I mean, that's clearly out of date. That That is out of date. I think it's something that you you, you could have pointed your finger at me uh, in 1983 when I was at school and said that. Um, but you couldn't point it at a top goalkeeper now. Um, and um, further to that, I know from having watched professional goalkeepers train that they're not the laziest. I mean, that the a goalkeeper's training session is brutal. Uh, you know, all of that up and down and up and down and reacts and so on. Um, that That is a long way from being lazy. Um, and I say again that uh, there's a dimension to goalkeeping, certainly a mental dimension, that other players don't have to deal with. Um, and growing up, certainly, that is a very, very tough dimension. That, that knowledge that you are the only player on the field whose mistake will almost inevitably lead to an opposition goal. Nobody else can say that, even if the centre-half makes a mistake, which very likely will lead to an opposition goal, he still potentially has the goalkeeper to dig him out of trouble. Um, but the goalkeeper is the last line of defence. And if it goes wrong for the goalkeeper, that's it. The game's up. And, and that is really hard to take on board. And I say again, for, especially for young people. You know, I've been there watching six- and seven-year-olds cry because they've let a goal in. And that's natural. And I always used to say when I was coaching at that sort of level, the toughest position on a football field is the goalkeeper's mum. You know, the poor mother who has to deal with the, with the little boy who's distraught because through no fault of his own, or perhaps through his own fault because he's young and in learning, you know, has let in the critical goal. It is absolutely brutal. Um, so so uh, in summary and in answer to your question, far from uh, deriding the goalkeeper by comparison with the other 10, uh, I'd be inclined to hold the goalkeeper up as, as someone who needs a little bit more. My, my mom lives 10 miles down the road and is clapping somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, there you are. I've, I've had to deal with quite a lot of mums, never mind my own mum. <laughs> it was, she would, she would, she, bless her heart, she would come to all of my games even when I wasn't playing. And even then she goes, I'm nervous for the, for the goalkeeper that's in right now. And I'm not, you're not even playing. Yeah, exactly. Horrendous, but, terrible oh, parental position. Oh, I love her so much. Yeah. But in, in addition to that last question, what are some of the goalkeepers you've watched that absolutely fit the crazy stereotype? Wow. Well, that's a tough one um, because I, actually I, I quite like the crazy stereotype. You know, I, I, don't, I don't see that as a badge of dishonor. I think goalkeepers are different and goalkeepers very often, you know, are a bit loopy. Um, and and that's a good thing because they throw themselves into positions where others wouldn't throw themselves. I mean, one of the one of the great goalkeepers of the 1980s and a, a sort of um, icon of mine was a guy you'll probably be aware of called Neville Southall, who used to keep goal for Everton when briefly they were the best team in the land in the mid 1980s. And, and he was just unconventional the way he moved, the way even the way he spoke, the way he carried himself. He, you know, he he didn't 
he didn't look smart or slick. Um, he he was almost um, childlike in his relishing of the kind of the mud and the dirt and throwing himself amongst the feet and so on. Um, and so he was he was certainly up amongst my favourites. The Liverpool goalkeeper of that same generation, Bruce Grobelar, was famously eccentric, you know, and used to have stand-up rows with the defenders in front of him, in front of the television cameras, the whole world, and, and, and you know, um, the, the spectators at the game as well. He was perhaps the most famously eccentric goalkeeper of them all. Uh, but they all have their eccentricities, and I think they all have to. They, apart from anything else, it's a a defence mechanism against, you know, all of the things that we've already mentioned. And it's it's so fascinating because you mentioned that, the, you know, the crazy isn't necessarily a negative connotation. And I absolutely agree with you. I think you need that, whether you, whether you want to call it crazy or whether you just want to call it an edge, that's it's almost what the position requires. Yes. Well, it needs you to be extrovert, I think. I, I don't think you, you hear of many introvert goalkeepers. No. Um, because... Um, by definition, you've got to shout, you've got to communicate. And if you are inhibited in that regard, and many are, by the way, and they're probably the ones who don't make it. Um, and I was, you know, I was embarrassed to shout and, and all of that. And, and that's no good because you've got to shout. You've got to be the boss. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a part of the makeup of the very best goalkeepers to shout Absolutely. and scream. Absolutely. Because it was so recent, we obviously have to at least mention the several incredible performances we did see at the World Cup. Mm. Now, there's already some controversy over whether he deserved it or whether or not, but we'll sidestep that controversy for now. But if not, if not Emmy Martinez, who would you say would be your Golden Glove winner for the tournament and why? Well, yeah, first of all, you're right. Let's sidestep all the other stuff about Martinez. Uh, but he was brilliant. Let's not forget that. Absolutely. And, and his, his eccentricity, whether, whether we like the way it was manifested or not, his eccentricity and his, uh, the, the degree to which he was extrovert surely played into his brilliance. Um, but obviously the other guy was Livakovic with Croatia, uh, who, who, as well as Martinez, made some brilliant penalty saves, but was also um, massively dominant uh, and clearly um, a leader of those in front of him. And he had good players in front of him. In fact, he probably had the best young centre-half there, Guardiol, um, and his relationship with him, I suspect, was was really important. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Levakovic was, was absolutely terrific. I had the same answer. Yeah. Um... And it came to my mind immediately as it happens. But for you, which save was bigger? Casillas' save against Robin or Martinez's save in extra time? <laughs> um, do you know what? I uh, am struggling still to picture Robin and Casillas. So only, only because of that and the, the, the failure of my memory, um, I'll have to go with Martinez in extra time. That's completely fair. I just had to see. I had to see what you thought, of course. Yeah. Um, and finally, before we go, who would you say is your greatest goalkeeper of all time, and why? Whoa. Um, I I want to say Mervyn Day because he was my first, as it were. He was my first love, and he was a very, very good goalkeeper. But it's probably true to say that there have been um, better ones, um, and I suppose the goalkeeper of my youth was Peter Shilton, uh, the great, the great, truly great England goalkeeper, the goalkeeper who was beaten by Maradona's hand of God. 
of course. Um, he had a, a career of extraordinary longevity. Um, and uh, I, I have one little funny story to tell about him. Probably the last proper game of football I played was a charity game of football, maybe 25 years ago. Um, and it was on a professional football field down the leagues in, in England. And uh, it, it, as I say, it was a charity and a few of the great and good came to it. Uh, I was in goal and we were 7-0 down at half time. And um, anyway, it was fixed. So it came back and we, we drew 7-all and it was a fun game and nobody minded. But Peter Shilton was at this game. And at the dinner afterwards, he came up and shook my hand and he said, I've never seen a display of goalkeeping like it. And gave me a big, uh, a big wink as if to say, and I don't want to see another one. Um, so, <laughs> so there you are. I, I, um, I, I always felt that was a very privileged moment. And Peter Shilton was, was brilliant. He was brilliant off his line. He was a brilliant taker of crosses through a crowded penalty area. And he was, like all of the great goalkeepers, uh, a fantastic shot stopper. So that is a note for anyone who's listening. Make sure you look up his highlights if you can find them. Absolutely, because believe you me, there are some great ones. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time today and, and hopping on the podcast. Thank you, Carter. I've really enjoyed that. To those listening, this has been yet another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Thank you very much again to Peter Drury for coming on. I have been your host, Carter Hockman. We will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Just for Keeps. 